Hello, and welcome to Be an Instructional Design Rockstar with Blair Stamper. Welcome to season three. I am just so excited for this season because I am doing something that I have never done before. In this season, I am going to interview instructional designers in the field and online learning professionals. This season is all about their journey and their background to where they are today. And the one thing that I notice that really threads through each person I interview is this innate ability to take these soft skills and skills that they have from previous careers, previous scholarly work, and apply it to the instructional design field. And the goal of this season is really just to empower you, the listener, to show that you can become an instructional designer and be successful in this career. I am so excited to be able to share these stories and to create a community and safe space to have these conversations. So let's get started. For today's episode, I had the opportunity to interview someone who I have admired for many, many years. Um, she is a joy to work with, and I was actually um, able to learn from her when I was actually in my undergrad. And she is just someone that radiates positivity, is such an amazing addition to the education community. And it was just really fun in this interview to learn from her um, and just listen to the things that she's doing for her students that we don't think about on a day-to-day basis. So Amy Kronberg is an um, online professor. Um, she's also working towards her doctoral degree. And she's really, really into, and she doesn't mention this in the interview, but really into humanizing learning. So I am really excited to bring this unique perspective of an online professor this time rather than an instructional designer. And I hope you all enjoy it. Let's get started. Awesome. Um, well, Amy, I just want to say thank you for hopping on to the podcast. I'm super excited to kind of dive into your background um, and your experiences that you're bringing to your own students. So I always like to start off with just the normal interview first question of tell me just a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it has been an exciting journey watching you grow and, and seeing how many parallels our, our careers and lives have sort of taken. So I started teaching preschool at the University of Michigan Dearborn, a regional campus of U of M at their child development center. And I taught there as a staff before becoming a lead teacher and realizing that I didn't quite think like my other lead teachers. And so I decided to pursue a master's degree in early childhood leadership and advocacy at the University of Dayton. So I moved to Dayton and I completed my master's degree. And because I just got so good at the school game, I continued on to get my PhD in, well, almost have my PhD in leadership, educational leadership, um, focusing on pre-K through 12 administration really focusing on that early childhood piece and bridging the gap between early childhood and K-12, looking at some of the differences there. So as far as work goes, I work as an early childhood education consultant with a local nonprofit. I helped write a couple of new chapters for an administrator textbook, and I teach 
adjunct at the University of Dayton. I've been teaching there in their teacher ed department since 2016, 2016, in some capacity, primarily focusing on child development, on social emotional regulation and skills. And um, really my, my biggest professional goal is helping teachers find their voice and really pushing them to use new technologies, use new strategies that they were afraid of and begin to advocate for best practices. That's amazing. I, I just love hearing all those accomplishments, especially knowing, knowing you from like 2012. It's so amazing to see the growth and um, just your advocacy to improve teachers, you know, well-being and um, their voices. So that's awesome. Thanks. Uh, yeah. Um, so what are your experiences with online learning specifically? When I was first asked to teach adjunct at the University of Dayton, I was asked to take over a class that had been online primarily, and it was a master's level course. And having taken the class as a student, I had some ideas about what I thought worked and what I felt did not work effectively. Primarily, the university had these online courses and they really wanted them to focus on building community. But knowing that our master's students are often, you know, education as a second career or they have other, you know, jobs, responsibilities and whatnot, they're waiting until the last minute to post in forums, right? They're waiting until the last minute to post their collaborative assignments. And so for me, being that go-getter as a student, it would be Monday that the, the course section opened and I would be ready to go, but I couldn't do any of my work until the very last day it was opened, waiting for others. And that asynchronous element in particular, to me, left much to be desired. I didn't feel that I had that sense of community that the university was so hoping to establish. And they had strategies that they felt worked. And I felt that it was using technology as a way to sort of replace what was happening in the classroom instead of enhance it, right? That the same thing happens in, in early childhood and, and in elementary school, right? We're like, oh, we have tablets. We're gonna use them to do worksheets. And you're like, well, then why not just use worksheets, right? Like this isn't a tool to replace in-person learning. It should be, it's technology, it's different. And so it should be treated as such. So when I started to take over some of the online courses, even prior to the pandemic, I wanted things to be different. If we were gonna have students view videos of lectures, why not have you know, YouTube videos embedded? I use Prezi a lot to create these virtual lectures, right? They can view them on their own time. I started to explore with using a flipped classroom model of for even for my in-person students at the undergraduate level, view these videos. We're not gonna waste our time in class going through this content. We're not gonna waste our time in class reading through what I think the key points are from your readings. You can do that on Prezi in your own time so that when we do have our time together, we can emphasize discussion, we can emphasize collaboration. And then when COVID came along, same idea, right? We had already laid the groundwork for using that technology to enhance learning so that when we came together synchronously via Zoom or I would meet one-on-one -on -one with students, the expectation was very clear there would be a dialogue. It wouldn't be a talking head. 
it was taking the same strategies I used in early childhood of building our own understanding of the world around us and then asking deep questions, right? Using that with adult learners as well. Even something as small as instead of having students write a formal reflection paper, right? Not all students use writing as their favorite modality, right? Some that blank screen can be so intimidating. So I started giving students the option of you can answer these three questions, right? Three things you learned, two things you felt, one thing you're going to do. And they could write it in a paper if that felt right to them, or they could do a video recording of themselves, right? Like a social media personality talking one-on-one -on -one to the camera, or they could do it as an audio recording, sort of this stream of consciousness, right? Like don't let the medium get in the way of your ideas. And the feedback has been fabulous. It's been more fun for me to grade too, right? Instead of reading 7,000 two-page papers, like hearing the students making sense of their learning in real time was so valuable. That's amazing. And I'm, I'm obsessed with your perspective from both like the student perspective of taking this course, but also now teaching that course. And I love that you're now able to provide such a different experience for your students. Um, so you, you brought up a really good point about the discussion boards and how a lot of times we try to emulate what we do in the face-to-face -face class to online. And that's one thing um, that myself and my fellow colleagues have been trying to kind of move away from is this discussion board. I think it's been overused, um, especially after the pandemic. Uh, so what are some ways, instead of using discussions, that you still get that student-to-student -student interaction in asynchronous classes? Yeah, this is something that has been weighing on my mind a lot, um, right? In, in the perfect world, it's like you have this discourse, right? You have these different threads and somebody posts a comment and then other people sort of add their thoughts. But how do you do that in a meaningful way that doesn't, one, turn into like the angry comment section on social media or two, just saying, yeah, good point, right? The university had this idea that when I was a student to encourage participation, you would have to have one original post and you'd have to reply to two different colleagues, right? But if you're in a master's class and only has five students, you're, you know, sitting there waiting. But if you're in a class that has 30 students and you want to find a way to meaningfully contribute, you have to read through like a hundred different posts. And that is like, you might as well assign another textbook reading. And so one of the ways that I have tried to get away from that is for some of my summer classes in particular, um, I tried to give the option of participating in a forum or participating in a real-time synchronous Zoom session. And so, you know, if somebody for some reason wasn't able to make the Zoom session, they could participate in the online forum, right? That adaptability, especially in the time of COVID, how can we make sure that people are able to participate meaningfully? Like that's the big driving factor for me. Um, and one of the things that I tried this summer, um, I just finished teaching a six week course. So I tried to use Canva as a way to encourage thoughtful reflection that may or may not be informed by others. So I created a couple of different like reaction templates and I called them collaborative notes. 
So I really thought deeply about what the discussion prompts would be and how we can make that into a collaborative format. So for example, one of the readings involved this cultural proficiency continuum. And so I sort of recreated that continuum and had everybody put key points underneath um, whatever these six steps are on this continuum. And I told them that in the instructions, you cannot repeat what another student has said. So that sort of forced them to read what others had said and then come up with something new. But then also at the end, you know, these students would have a flyer they could share with colleagues if they wanted to. And it would have all of these elements of, you know, cultural proficiency. And some of it was just, you know, write a summary of your notes. And I, the jury's still out on whether I felt it was successful. I think it was an improvement on what students had expected. It was new technology for most of them. It was new for me. I had never used Canva in this way, but it was a way for them to visual. It, it appealed to our visual learners so that they could see some of these elements, see how they connected. They had to read what others had posted. They didn't necessarily have to respond. So it was a collaborative effort and it was a reflective one, but I don't necessarily know that it would, again, it's not, it's trying to capture some of the magic of in-person discussion, and, but not necessarily replace it. And that in that way, it was successful. But I'm still just sort of always thinking about ways to meet different learning modalities, especially when you work with international students in a, in a discussion that's live, you aren't going to have that same participation for our English language learners, right? Because they're translating it into their native language, they're translating it back out, or culturally speaking, they may or may not feel comfortable speaking up. And so this sort of provided an opportunity for those students to have a voice, but also, you know, it takes time, it's asynchronous. So I'm leaning more towards it worked better than I had hoped, but not necessarily know that it, it hit the mark, but it is, that is definitely a question that's always on my mind. Oh, there's so much I could pull out of this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's um, first, the whole, uh, that is one, the first thing that you talked about is having the asynchronous or synchronous opportunities for discussion. That's one thing that we have been or at least my colleagues and I have been trying to push uh, more of. And I love that you're giving the students the option because that is something, it's like an epiphany for me. So that's like, oh yeah, it's not one or the other. We can give them the option if they're not able to attend that specific time. I think that's amazing. Um, and what you said about um, the inclusion and the cultural representation, that's so huge right now, especially with international students. And that's something that is, definitely one of my passions of trying to figure out how do we allow all students to be represented in and then also um, allow their voices to be heard. So I, I have to give you lots of props for the amount of humanizing learning that you're doing, but also just the amount of reflective learning that you're doing. I think that's exactly it. Like, obviously, a big passion for me is is finding your voice, right? Like, as somebody who sang their whole life, right? Like there's a great, you know, metaphor there, I'm sure. But for a lot of time, 
I mean, and women in particular, you know, it's, it's hard to feel like we've found our voice to advocate for ourselves, let alone advocate for policy or let alone advocate for best practices. And that's how you end up with a lot of people in education in particular feeling that they have to implement policies that don't necessarily reflect their knowledge base or their professionalism. And so one way that I try to bring that full circle is helping students advocate for themselves. And sometimes options are toxic, right? I had one student who wasn't sure about the assignment. Um, and so instead of submitting one of the three options, she submitted it in all three ways. So she recorded herself reading her paper and then pulled the audio and she submitted all three. And it was so endearing to me. And I was like, oh, I was trying to make this easier for you. And that was lost in translation. Um, but helping these students that are master's students in particular, um, that maybe this is their first class in 10, 15 years, right? Maybe they are just coming to education from another field, um, whatever their circumstances are, I'm trying to find ways to differentiate to their needs. And that has been sort of a light bulb for me that we all have a different voice. We all don't have the same skills to use it in the same way, right? Like when we talk about differentiating instruction for young children, we talk about, you know, scaffolding, where can we meet, how can we meet them where they are? Where do they need additional support? Where can we make sure they thrive? And I had a light bulb moment a couple of years ago with a student who was really struggling. And I said, instead of writing a paper, because that is triggering your anxiety, like just, just meet with me and talk me through it. Right. I'll just ask you the same questions that would be in the reflection. I might ask a couple follow-up questions, but that helped that student feel empowered. Like, oh, this is my learning style. This is my communication style. This suits my needs. And it's easier to do with master's students than it is with undergraduate students, just typically because of sheer number. But, you know, it, it's as small as, you know what, you can have as an undergraduate student, one mental health pass that if you miss a deadline for an assignment, just say, you know, this is my mental health pass. I need an additional week to do this. No harm, no foul, right? It's empowering students to advocate for themselves in small ways so that when the time comes, they can advocate for themselves or for practices or policies in a big way down the line. I love that, a mental health week. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I can't take credit for it. A colleague introduced me to it and I was like, oh, the number of times that as a student, I just needed that one more day, right? Like that in, in pursuit of quality work instead of meeting deadlines, you know? Yes, that's amazing. And so empowering for students too. I think sometimes we have this like hustle, hustle, got to get it done and allowing them just to take a step back and say, how can I make this better and do it in a way that actually makes me feel good. So that's awesome. Yeah. One thing that I did this, um, this year, you know, sort of getting back into in-person learning with my undergraduate students instead of, you know, all virtual learning and sometimes flip-flopping back and forth, depending on surges, um, and, and exposures, I would send out once a month, a Google form that was optional. That was, I, I called it a mental health check-in and it usually had like 
three or four questions. And it started with, and it could be anonymous or they could put their name on it. They had that choice. So I started with, you know, on a scale of one to 10 with one being the world is ending and 10 being puppies and butterflies and rainbows, where would you rate your mental health? Right. It's a ludicrous scale, but you know, fun. And then I would ask, what is one thing that's stressing you out this week? What is one thing you're doing to handle that? And then I would ask, do you want to meet with your professor? And the number of students that said yes, but then didn't put their name was a little bit funny to me, but it helped the students see that I actually did care about their well-being and not just their grades and deadlines. And the feedback that I've gotten in my course evaluations have been like, this was a really helpful way for me to feel more connected to my professor, knowing that she has so many other students. And I would tell the students, you know, this can be your scream into the void moment, or this can be your asking for help moment. And you get to just sort of determine which one of those things it is. Um, and that was, you know, a way, to, a way to use technology that, and it was optional. And more than 60% of my students responded to it, which sort of says a lot of that power of connection in teaching. Yeah, I was going to ask what percentage that you found students actually participated. That's amazing. It just goes to show you how much students really still need, even though they're in the online space, they still need that community, that connection to somebody and to know that somebody's there behind the scenes, not just clicking a button saying, you know, great job. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's awesome. Actually that transition, that whole conversation transitions really well to what would you say your greatest success is so far in your career? Oh gosh. Um, completely on theme is, um, finding ways to advocate for myself. Um, I started when I started as a master's student, I wasn't working and that was really new for me and it only lasted a semester. Um, but I started out as a graduate research assistant and I felt like I had just leapt and I was hoping a net would appear and it did. Right. I, I had the great fortune of working with a teacher in a completely different department. He was in sports management. Um, but he really taught me about looking at your resume, look for your dream job. What, what does your dream job look like? Find that person that has that job, look at their resume, figure out where the gaps are and then fill them. And so in terms of what I learned from that experience is advocating for what I want, right? Not what I need to do, but what I get to do. So, you know, I wanted to focus on infant toddler childhood development, infant toddler social, emotional health and wellness, right? Especially when I became a, the mother to an infant and then toddler and now preschooler, but really just finding a way to professionally look at my own resume, figure out, you know, what is my dream job, knowing very well that that may change, but what does my dream job look like? I always joke, like I'm tired of tilting at windmills and just figuring out my own path. There is no clear way to get to being, you know, a consultant and an adjunct and 14 other hats at one given point in time. But with that sort of path that you get to chart, um, you know, you're going to have those, those patches on the path that are difficult to navigate. Um, you know, you're going to have people that are emailing you after hours that want, you know, answers right now. You're going to have moments where 
it is taking a toll on your mental health. And so finding a way to say, you know what, I, this can wait until tomorrow. Um, for me, that, that is my son started to go to preschool, you know, full time. Um, but on Tuesdays I have mom and mom and my Sunday, right? Like it's just the two of us. He has swim lessons in the morning and then we do some sort of activity together. So every, almost without fail every Tuesday. And so now people that I work with know Amy doesn't work on Tuesdays. And that's often because I'm working on the weekends, uh, just casually, right? Like grading papers or working on other projects or going to events for, for work. And so really finding the small ways to advocate for myself so that people know I am, you know, serious about certain things and that I am productive. Um, working from home in particular was another thing that I wanted to advocate for. It has its trade-offs, but finding a way to chart your own path is very difficult and it is not for the faint of heart. And so finding your voice again, um, for yourself helps you practice what you preach as well. Um, and then it sets a great example for my son that, you know, mommy works, mommy works from home, but that doesn't mean that the work that I do is less meaningful, less valuable, um, but that it's also on my own terms, which is huge, which is huge. I couldn't, I couldn't ask for, couldn't ask for anything more. That's amazing. Oh, I love your mentor of them having you look at your future goals and seeing what the pieces that are missing. Like I've never heard of something like that. And that's, that's like so smart to do. He's, he's amazing. It like, it, it changed my life because I felt like I wasn't sure where I was going. And, um, he's the one that encouraged me to get my PhD. He's like, yeah, it's, it's more school, but if you're good at the school game, right? Like it's three letters that open a lot of doors. Um, and he, Dr. Peter Teitelbaum, I'll name drop. He's amazing. Um, he teaches this to his undergraduate students. And so they do resume writing and, and workshopping, and he has them go through a mock interview. He has this whole format for a cover letter that, you know, has been life-changing. Um, but really just that idea of, especially as somebody who has a future thinking strength to visualize who is that person? Like when you're like, oh, I want to do what that person does. It's less about just dreaming and more about putting in actionable steps, right? What are the skills that you need that are in that job description you want? And then find a way to do them, whether that's through volunteering, through taking a new position or advocating for a new project at work, whatever that case may be. Like that's just sound advice, whatever, whatever career you are in. So if you're willing to share, you don't have to, is what, I know you're in the process of your PhD, kind of coming up to the final pieces. What does your future self look like? This is something that I've thought a lot about. Um, you know, I started working on my PhD and taking classes in 2015. So it's not been a quick journey. Um, and it's taken me you know, four years to, to put together my dissertation. And I think a lot about what are the projects that I'm working on now that bring me the most joy? What are the things that empower me to empower others? Um, you know, I, I grew up in a family that was very service and community oriented. And 
I work for a university that is again, very service-minded. And so that's always something that's close to my heart. And you know, that, that dream job that I had targeted um, has changed a lot. And it's changed because that person um, runs the, the nonprofit that I work for. So I've gotten to know her personally, right? Like I've gotten to foster that relationship and the work that she does is so incredible. And I now know like, yeah, I definitely don't want that job. <laughs> um, I definitely don't think that I can see myself, you know, running a nonprofit or things like that. My mom would always say, you should run your own school one day. And I'm like, I don't know that I want to do that either. But for me, I love to have input, right? I love to have ideas to share and stories to share. Um, in fact, my dissertation is a lot about teachers sharing their stories and what are the common threads we can pull from that. And so I think for me, it's similar to the work that I'm doing now, which is advocating for children and families, right? Um, one of the projects I work on now is these home learning boxes that go home um, for preschool children that, you know, empowers the children to have materials for open-ended play, but helps their families support them in conversation building and skill building. So just whatever it is that I do in the next five years or 10 years, I hope that I, I still get to share people's stories and, and inspire others, but more so than that, inspire others to take action, right? Whether that's advocating for, you know, an infant toddler playgroup at the libraries that's open-ended and social, whether that is teachers advocating for professional development that's job embedded and not just one and done. Um, I love to travel. I would love to continue to speak at conferences. Um, it's always that balance for me of bridging the theory practice gap that in education in particular, we are very aware of, you know, we, especially with, you know, teachers like this is the theory, this is what you should do. This is how you should do it. And then they get into the classroom and they're like, wow, not one piece of that is helpful. So whether it is, you know, helping students in teacher ed see that possibility or helping practicing teachers realize there's more to what they do instinctively, um, you know, there will always be a teaching element, a service element to what I do, but that community element of, of helping those to help themselves really is a big part of it. So I, I don't know, I'm still, I'm still, you know, hacking away at the weeds to, to chart that course. And I probably always will be, but you know, through that, you, you get to see some beautiful scenery along the way. Yes. And one thing I'm realizing, and I think you probably, it sounds like you've realized this too. Um, you don't ever have to be stuck where you are. You can always grow. And yes, it's scary to take on the next steps, but um, just being able to navigate that is fun and scary, but amazing. And hearing you talk just reminds me of how much, how much you've always inspired me. So I appreciate it. I appreciate the feeling this. is mutual. Absolutely. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is, what's the best piece of advice that you would have for somebody who's either going into teaching or going into early childhood, or even going into, um, like teaching online as a professor? That's a great question. So it's probably twofold. The first piece is 
watch others and learn from them. Um, one thing I tell my undergraduate students is that every time they go into a classroom, every time they take a class or they see some sort of teaching in action, I tell them to write down a list of things that they want in their future classroom and things that they definitely don't want. And so for, for me, as somebody who's always journaled and, you know, written to get their thoughts out, um, you can do the same thing with a voice memo if writing isn't your thing, right? Like just audio record your, your rants so that you, you know, don't tax your family listening to the same rants over and over. Um, but in a journal or some sort of notebook, really start to visualize, you know, what you want your classroom to look like and feel like. You know, I had some not great pre-teaching, you know, pre-student teaching experiences, and I learned a lot more from those in some ways than I did from others. But having that list of what my, what I want to take into my classroom and what I want to leave out of my classroom helped me visualize myself as a teacher, right? Like it's not at graduation you're done and you're like, oh, what am I going to do? What is my job going to look like? Where am I going to teach? Am I going to like it? It's coming in with sort of these suitcases, these toolboxes packed and ready to move in, um, you know, metaphorically speaking. Um, that's a big piece of it. And the other part is something I read a couple of years ago, and I don't know the source of it, but it is always carried with me that in education in particular, there is no sort of beginning date and end date. There's no start time and end time. You don't clock in, you don't clock out. And that is true regardless of whatever age you teach. It's true as, you know, and a learning consultant, right? As, as you know. And so one of the biggest things that I've tried to learn, um, it's a juggling act. And when you're juggling, you have to learn which balls are rubber and which balls are glass. And so some of those things that are lower priority are rubber. And so, you know, you can drop them, you know, they'll bounce and you can pick them back up. But there are others that are glass, right? These are your core values. These are your family. These are, you know, your driving factors, your fundamental pieces of you. And when you drop those, they're going to break. And so you have to sort of know, you have to acknowledge that you're going to drop balls, right? You're going to miss a deadline. You're going to make a mistake. That's how we grow. And when you foster relationships with your peers, when you foster relationships with clients or whatever, you know, students, whatever the case may be, they're going to understand they were the rubber ball here, as long as you communicate that with them and they are going to give you grace and you're going to be able to pick it back up and get right back into that juggling act. It may take some time in some cases, but you have to hold close those, those balls that are glass. You don't, you don't want to fracture those beyond repair. I love that analogy. That's amazing. Um, okay. So because I love stealing what other people are reading, I always like to end with what are you currently reading? Yes. Um, this is great. I <laughs> in here somewhere. Cause I want to, I want to make sure I get the title, right. Um, one of my biggest things is social emotional learning, right? I was um, it wasn't until I was an adult that I realized I was a very anxious child <laughs> and I, you know, struggled with anxiety and depression. And I talked pretty openly about it with my students. Um, and so understanding now the brain and, and development and how we learn, I always talk about feelings, 
right? And I, you know, say to my students, like, you might think that this is silly, but it's really important to talk about your feelings. And here's why. So I have this book called Big Feelings. It is by Liz Foslin and Molly West Duffy, how to be okay when things are not okay. And because I'm also a visual person, I follow them on social media. They share all of these little, you know, these little sketches like anxious fixing, avoiding the problem because you feel anxious and then you feel anxious because you're avoiding the problem, right? And they're these little one picture sketches that help visualize these big feelings that we have. You know, I always joke that with my husband, um, that feelings are a language, right? And through years of self-reflection and self-improvement, I've become quite fluent in the language of my own feelings. And he still has conversational skills, right? Like it's a little rough to translate exactly how he's feeling and he's growing, you know, the more time that I irritate him about it. Um, but I love their approach to these, these big feelings that we can't avoid them. They impact what we do, they impact our everyday life, right? All behavior has meaning, even for us as adults. And so looking at those big feelings behind it helps us understand our world, the people around us. Oh my gosh. I love that book. I'm going to add that to my Amazon list (laughs) and how amazing to, to be able to teach that to your son as well. Like that's just awesome. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome until you're at the zoo and you're carrying him out and you're like, I hear you, you are frustrated because yes. you don't want to leave. And your three-year-old looks at you and goes, I'm not frustrated. I'm angry because you're not <laughs> listening. And people are, they're turning their heads and they're like, that came out of that little tiny body. And I'm like, yeah, it's fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am right there with you. <laughs> My daughter got angry with me one time and turned around all the pictures of me in the house and said, I'm very angry with you right now. So I'm, I'm right there with you. (laughs) Yes. Um, well, Amy, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Um, this was an amazing conversation and I think that the things that you shared are just going to help so many people, um, in, in just seeing education in a new way, um, and being able to advocate for their own voices. Thank you so much. And, and I have enjoyed following your, your posts and your work on, on social media and just rethinking what it is to be an instructional designer. Like for me, I would never have really given myself that title. And as I started to think about it, you know, we, anytime we take something and we try to enhance it with technology or we try to improve it, right. That is exactly what is at the heart of what you do. And, um, Thank you for, for, for teaching me on this journey as well. So some of the key takeaways from this amazing interview were Amy's use of this mental health pass. How many times can you think about when you were a student and you just had a horrible week, everything went wrong, and then you had to sit down Sunday and get all of your work done. And so being able to give your students that mental health pass to say, I understand not every day is going to be perfect, not every week is going to be perfect, and just to have that extension of time is such an amazing idea that I hope many, many of us take away from this. Some other things were about advocating for themselves. So being able to actually put into words what they're feeling, the emotions that they're going through, being able to talk about that and the opportunity to say, I need help in this point, or I need a connection and creating those communities and that amazing 
feeling of connection in an online course where it's fully asynchronous and they're not seeing each other on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's obvious that she's creating these relationships with her students that allow them to come to her and be honest with her and say, I need help right now, or I need an extension, or here's the areas that I'm not understanding. And the last thing that really just I took away and I still use um, to this day since this interview was this idea of thinking about your priorities and thinking about, you know, you have these rubber balls and these glass balls. And if you drop one of them, you know, the rubber balls and their low priorities, they'll bounce right back up and they will be there. But then you have your glass balls that if you drop, they're going to shatter and it's going to take a lot more work to work towards that trust again or work to build that up again. And so being able to when I'm stressed out, when I have a huge to do list, looking at my list and say, which are things that I can let go of and say, that's okay, I'll get to them when I can, and which are really important that I cannot let go of because they are my morals, they're my family, they're you know things that if I drop, I'm going to lose. So I just hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. It was an amazing, um, inspiring interview for me, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in to Be an Instructional Design Rockstar with Blair Stamper. I hope you enjoyed getting to hear someone else's perspective in the online learning field. Hopefully their stories were enough to inspire you and show you that you're not alone as you're going through the process of creating a course, teaching a course, or even just learning as a student in an online course. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.